But today is VE Day. The boys the newly crowned the... queen waves from the belt. Eagle has landed. Apollo 11 has landed. Tearing down the Berlin Wall. Since 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth. The World Wide Web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk. We're here at the CityWire Wealth Manager Retreat 2023. I'm joined by Erica Chung, one of the whistleblowers who exposed Elizabeth Holmes's blood testing company, Theranos, as a fraud and has just given an amazing talk at our event. Um, welcome. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you very much for joining us. I suppose, you know, this is a very well-known case, but in a nutshell, who was Elizabeth Holmes and what did Theranos do? So Elizabeth Holmes was the founder of Theranos. Mm -hmm. She started the company when she was 19 and she dropped out of Stanford to basically mm -hmm. produce this revolutionary diagnostic. So instead of doing a venous draw for all your blood samples, it was in a finger stick. And yeah. she claimed that you could do hundreds of tests on this finger stick sample. Right, processed in a machine about the size of a printer, you said. Exactly, exactly. So the idea is in the future, maybe you could put these devices in your own home, uh, but the intermediary was to put them in Walgreens centers across mm -hmm. the US. Okay, um, and so where do you come into this story? So I come into the story uh, equally uh, uh, young as well. So uh -huh. I had come in. You, you said you just graduated from university. I just graduated from my bachelor's at UC Berkeley. So I was about 22 years old and was sort of an idealistic, starry-eyed 20-something-year-old who really wanted to leverage my skills to help um, to, to help people in the healthcare sector. That mm -hmm. was kind of a goal of mine. And so I had seen homes, I had seen the technology we were producing. I was caught up in the hype of the Silicon Valley and how much enthusiasm yeah. and excitement was going on during that time period that uh, decided to, to join this company and to be a part of this, uh, what they described as a, a technology diagnostic revolution. Okay, and so when did you realize things weren't quite as they seemed? So it was probably after working for about a month in the company. And so one of the examples that I use is when we were running these uh, quality checks on the devices, the Edison devices, mm -hmm. that we were getting an immense amount of variability on the accuracy of different right. tests. So Test results for the same sample would come out totally different. Exactly, exactly. And so this was getting really concerning. And it wasn't just happening for like one sample or one type of test, it was happening for all of our tests that we were running on these Edison devices, so on about 12 different tests. And so I started to get progressively more concerned because of the issues and the performance that we were seeing with these tests. They just couldn't be trusted. Mm. You couldn't figure out what the true answer was in terms of what someone's blood result was. And of course, we were already testing on patients with these devices despite the fact that it was becoming more and more apparent that they were just faulty. Right. And so at a certain point, you decided to speak up, right? Yes. So in terms of the speak up process, there was a lot of internal reporting, lots yeah. of talking to your supervisors, lots of talking to different people across the organization of like, am I, is this right? Am I seeing this? Are you also seeing this? Mm. What's kind of going on here? Was getting a lot of runaround of like, well, try this variable, try this experiment, try this. And after 
kind of running a lot of different experiments, gathering lots of different evidence, it became more and more apparent that it was just not working. The device was not working, it wasn't doing what it claimed, and it really was not reliable enough to be launched on patients. And so I had reported to the COO, I'd reported to the board, and got a lot of pushback. And basically they told me to leave the company in summary. I go into a little bit of depth in the talk about like what the word for word thing they said to me, but effectively they were telling me that uh, you're wrong and maybe you should leave. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sadly, we haven't got time to go into all today. It was an, it was an amazing talk, but, um, you know, needed to say Elizabeth Holmes is in prison for 11 years now, but it was a kind of very tumultuous process after blowing the whistle to then anything happening, right? Yes, yes. The whistleblowing process is a very challenging process. Mm. There isn't a single whistleblower I've talked to that it, it does not have pretty intense personal consequences. Mm to their personal and professional lives. It's very, very challenging. From the acute process of actually blowing the whistle to all of the litigation and uh, legal issues that you have. And in this case, there was a lot of attention from the media and from all sorts of different organizations that made it equally complicated. So it was it was a tough process. The whistleblowing yeah. process is not for the faint of heart, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, very rewarding in other ways, because there's a certain amount of peace I think I can have with my own decision-making, mm -hmm. uh, that, um, uh, I don't think a lot of other people can have. Okay. Well, that, well, that's good. We, we should probably say to people, if you want to find out the full story, listen to one of the popular podcasts or indeed watch the dramatization, the dropout of this. But I suppose I, I, I want to ask you, I mean, so what ultimately, you know, nearly 10 years after joining the company, what do you think of how it's it worked out? I mean, has justice been served? I think, I mean, it's so bittersweet for someone like me because at mm. the end of the day, starting off, I really wanted to see this thing succeed. I wanted to be a player in helping point of care diagnostics come into development and come into fruition. And it's unfortunate that the company I joined up and signed up and was so heavily invested in and, and yeah. bought into was un unfortunately a fraud. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some aspect of that of like watching your ideals kind of fall mm -hmm. was is, is a bit challenging and, and seeing no one comes out of a collapse like this and feels particularly good out of it. In terms wow. of the fact that justice was served there's no longer the case that business leaders are like you had a business leader who cre created a circumstance that harmed so many people and engaged in so much egregious negligent behavior finally say you need to take responsibility for this and also face the consequences of your decision making that was kind of nice to see okay it, there is infrastructure in society to say we're going to hold people accountable when they harm people's lives when they defraud investors as heavily as they did. And so there is some justice there that, okay, we're going to see a rebalance in terms of our expectations of, of, of how people behave and that you can't just harm people mm. and expect to get away with it. Yeah. And, you know, so you, you work with whistleblowing organizations now. I mean, <laughs> I'm, go I'm, I'm going to ask something, a question for which there's clearly not one answer. I mean, how do you stop things like this? I mean, what, you know, 
clearly there's not one key tip, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's not one key tip. I think one, uh, highlighting the importance of whistleblowers. Okay. So in case in cases of fraud, yeah. for example, I think 43, it's something like 43, 50, depending on where you are in the world, 50% uh, of cases are actually exposed through whistleblower complaints. So they're an incredibly valuable resource in terms of highlighting when misconduct or fraud or waste or abuse occurs. Yeah. And, and so really getting people recognizing the value that these people bring to, to society, to bringing accountability to organizations, I think is, is, is really crucial and really important. In terms of what those processes look like, it can yeah. be really dependent on the case Okay. Because there is a lot of nuance depending on what country you're in, what type of case is it? Is it a fraud case? Is it an employment discrimination case? Is it uh, a misconduct? Is it an environmental uh, uh, waste case? So it can really depend on so many different facets. Sure. Um, but there are a lot of advocacy groups and organizations that kind of demystify what that process looks like. Okay. And I suppose, you know, it, it, it depends case by case, but I mean, take the medical industry in the US, for example. Do you think since that time it will have got easier for whistleblowers? I mean, you mentioned, for example, that, that you know, with private companies, it's, it's harder to be a whistleblower yeah. still, perhaps. It's, I mean, at least in the US, we do have a lot of different regulatory agencies right. that people can lean on to report. We do have legal infrastructure that supports whistleblowers, mm. both on the corporate side and the governmental side. Mm -hmm. Whether your case is going to come to completion or not is hard to say. It depends on a lot of different factors, whether the government decides to take it seriously, mm. whether there's financial incentives to make it come through, whether there's enough evidence uh, to be tried uh, for a particular case. Is it easier? I think it is easier than, say, 40 years ago. Definitely, and there's progress being made. Is it a perfect system? No. I think that there have been more mechanisms in place to make it easier to report anonymously as well, which I think is a really big value add to these cases because it does come at a lot of personal and professional risks. Right. And being able to not actually being be identified as a whistleblower but still going through the reporting process is is really i think crucial to the success of a lot of these cases because it mitigates a lot of the the personal liability okay um slightly different issue but you know this is a company that uh, at its peak was valued about 10 billion dollars raised more than 700 million dollars from investors i mean knowing what you know now you surprised so many smart well-off people got duped i think I think there's a lot of different factors at play in here. I think the timing was really crucial for Theranos' success. Yeah. I think there was an immense amount of hype going into a lot of these venture-backed companies. And I think generally the investor sentiment was, I'm not so much scared of losing $10 million, but I'm scared of not investing in the next Amazon where I could potentially 60X my money. Right. Kind of fear of missing out. The fear of missing out was very, very pervasive during that time. It was a founder's market. There was a lot of quick deals being made in general. And a lot of people who weren't venture capitalists who hadn't been in the game for a long time were trying to get a slice of the pie. Yeah. And I think that created an environment that you were able to um, get a lot of investors who just wanted to get into the next hot 
yeah. deal. So I don't think they had the same due diligence. Do you think processes. that mindset's ebbed a bit now? Or? I think we're entering into a phase that people are going to be just generally more austere. Yeah. Uh, and you, you have sort of been seeing that uh, in the venture space, at least in the tech space yeah. now, that people have wised up a little bit and there have been enough of these big... I mean, the fact that Theranos happened was already kind of a big collapse and then it was a series of a lot of other tech firms between we were sure you buy them there was tons of them that were coming out of of the valley and then also i think with ftx and just how massive of a collapse that was there's just generally a lot more vigilance yeah. in that sector um but uh i think we can all understand that when we're trying to maximize our earnings, how it can create a circumstance where we might overlook the small details, but very crucial right. and necessary uh, details in order to make a, a, a informed decision. Yeah. Um, and I was, I, I was, I suppose I was not surprised to hear that in the wake of this, you, you know, you wanted to move out of the country, get away from everything, move to Hong Kong. But I was more surprised to hear at one point you then became invested in venture capital yourself. Yes. I would have thought this would all kind of put you off that world. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, uh, I think I was really curious. I mean, uh, every step of my career has always been trying to answer more and more questions of like why the world is the way it is. Yeah. And for me, it was like, why do certain things get investment versus others don't? Mm -hmm. And why are there such great innovations that we have in academia or in these research institutes and they're not seeming to get funding, but others are? And so I wanted to just understand how are these investors thinking? What are their bottom lines? What are the ways that they're orienting themselves? And what are the ways in certain ways that you can better protect investors? Because many of them who are also wanting to uh, invest in these new creative, innovative technologies are getting duped. And how do we put better protections around them? Because ultimately they are sort of spearheading our ability to innovate. Um, so that's what made me go into venture capital. I worked with different family offices and helped launch a tech accelerator where we did early stage tech investment because I wanted to figure out how were they thinking about these deals? How were they analyzing these different companies and what were the risks that they were opening themselves up to, um, because they wanted a part of the action. Mm. And I was funny enough in Hong Kong, uh, during the kind of ICO crypto, uh, craze. Yeah. yeah. And, uh. Just watching just um, very blatant fraud happen. Like we got a white paper at one point that had a, uh, Ryan Gosling as the head of uh, U UX design. Okay. <laughs> Nothing like a leading actor to be a part of your UX when design team. When he's not buying Wrexham uh, football club. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they ended up raising tens of millions of dollars. And um, yeah, so it was a bit of a shocking time to be on that part of the world during all of the hype of the crypto world. And, and, and that's sort of, again, on that point of uh, my career has been a series of me trying to ask a bunch of questions. That's why I'm doing the nonprofit now in ethics yeah. is because I realize, oh, okay, this is a big missing but essential piece to the way we think about business is how do we incorporate ethics into the ways in which business leaders are running their business, investors are thinking about their investments, mm. and workers are really thinking about who they decide to work for versus who they decide not to work for, or how do they grapple with different dilemmas they might face in the course of their careers. Yeah. I mean, so you, you mentioned your, your um, non nonprofit. Um, that's kind of, I wanted to finish by asking again a bit about whistleblowing. Um, and you mentioned sexual harassment in your talk as well. I mean, in the UK, we've, we've just had a very high profile fund manager um, 
and very significant sexual harassment allegations reported. Um, you know, can you can you kind of speak about that a bit uh, and the kind of the role the media can play in this? Yeah. So I think I I always tell people when it comes to uh, cases where it's an individual against an individual or a group or people against people, it's much mm. harder. It's right. much harder uh, because why you don't have as much documentation in those cases. It's all based on testimony. Sometimes there is evidence, and I tell. A lot of people involved in these cases make sure that you have the aggregation of this evidence. But I think to that point, the reason why media is so important is sometimes there is a case where you have a really compelling case, but the courts aren't going to take it seriously or they don't have enough incentive to really want to take it through the just process or maybe the victim mm. cannot afford to take it through that process. The media is really a mechanism and a channel to allow transparency to be shed on some of these David versus Goliath cases and allow the system to sort of realize like, oh, this case exists. Mm -hmm. It's here. This is a scope. This is a breadth. Can we funnel resources to the victim in a way that they're able to get the support they need to actually see this thing come to justice? Mm -hmm. And it's not always easy to just go through the normal channels, especially if you're not in a position of power um, to just go through the courts in yeah. all of the cases or to find a lawyer or to take on those burdens and those exp exp uh, expenses. And, um, and in some cases, maybe you don't have the ability to even go through the courts. You can still have the truth prevail utilizing the media. You can still have some transparency into whatever transgressions are occurring mm -hmm. uh, without it needing to go through the courts. And I think that's a real value. And it can also put pressure on different institutions to also uh, look more closely at certain cases. Okay. Well, thanks very much for speaking to us, Erica. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Since 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth. The World Wide Web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk.